coming up. Organizations have to question themselves. Diversity and inclusion is a choice. It's these fundamental questions that are inside the most loveliest non-racist people. But that is a form of unconscious racism. There have been protests in the UK and all over the world since the murder of George Floyd. As a result, the Black Lives Matter movement is stronger than ever and has the potential to make real change. How has this one incident sparked so much anger and frustration? And will there ever be true equality? Will we care enough for long enough to make it right? Digital learning that's dramatically different. Welcome to this TED Learning Podcast. Please be warned that this podcast contains strong language and discussions that you might find upsetting. I'm Justin from TED Learning, and in this podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by actor Josette Simon and people director Aggie Matuma. Both are successful black women who very kindly agreed to talk to us today about Black Lives Matters, their experiences in growing up in the UK, and their thoughts on how not being racist is no longer enough. So we'll start with you, Aggie. Growing up, how did your daily life differ to, say, the white friends that you had? I don't think I was aware of it at the time. I went to a predominantly white school, so there weren't very many black people at all. And it was a Catholic school. The white girls, my friends, were all deemed pretty because, obviously, they looked like the models. Um, I didn't feel that I was pretty. I didn't feel I was attractive. When it came to culture and home life, I didn't feel as understood because I grew up in an African household. It was a bit more strict. We did a bit more housework. My white friends didn't necessarily experience. Outside of school is probably where I felt different in terms of race because late 80s and you'd see the National Front signs as you're sort of walking to the shops and things like that you'd hear people calling you the n-word and things like that as well which wasn't that nice. Josette what about you? My parents came from the Caribbean part of the Windrush generation. They worked really 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 hard to buy a wimpy house on a new estate and we were the only black family on this estate. Wherever I walked, you'd come across groups or one or two people walking together and they'd shout racist comments. And once I was coming back from junior school and I was chased by a gang through the park shouting nigger and coon and wog and, you know, all that kind of language. And I was so scared. I ran so fast and to my parents' house that I actually soiled my pants. I was that scared. People always say to me, you know, when you walk, you're so sort of tall and you walk with this incredible sort of stature. It's not something I think about, but people often say this to me over the years. And I know exactly where that comes from. When I was growing up and subjected to all this racism, if I saw a group of people and I felt that they were going to shout at me or chase me, I'd make myself very small. And I think I must have been about 11 or 12 when I suddenly thought, I'm not creeping by them like this. I'm going to stand up tall. And that's where my thing comes from. But one thing I realised growing up is that you're always the other, the odd one out, the different one. Always. And that never, ever goes away. Education is our formative years, isn't it? It's when it helps us become the people that we are and we should be safe in that environment. Were your educators aware of some of the pressures that either of you were under during that time? Absolutely not. All my teachers were white people, apart from one gentleman who was from the Caribbean. He was uh, the PE teacher. He actually almost took the black kids under his wing. It was almost as if we had a voice and he got us and he understood us. Unless someone said something horrible, such as the N-word, which I won't say, any racial slurs, anything else like singling you out or anything like that wasn't necessarily picked up or talked about. At school, what did the teachers pick up? I don't know. They would have known about 
parties and things because people would come in and talk about it. And I don't think I ever let on that I wasn't one of the invited or anything. I just kept really, really quiet. I was so silent. I kept my head down. I worked really hard. And, um, yeah, I was very reserved. Would you say there was a defining moment in your life that sums up your experiences? It's cumulative. There are lots of different experiences. My hair is a good reflection of my journey because, you know, now I wear my hair how I want to wear it, really. So it's Afro, it's whatever it is. When I started doing that, I started getting comments from white ladies. And I work in HR, so actually the most racism I suffered in the workplace is actually from HR people. So I'd get comments such as, oh, Aggie, why don't you wear your hair like other black lady who has a straight weave? That's much more professional. Oh, Aggie, I think I liked your hair before when you used to have it straight. No, just comments like that. If I think of any defining moments, I would think there's one thing that runs through all of them. And that is the sense of people telling me you won't be able to do this, you won't be able to do that. This is a motif that runs through my whole life and work and everything. When I went to Central School of Speech and Drama, I discovered I really loved the classics, you know, like most people thought Shakespeare was boring because school makes it boring. And I, uh, and I thought, oh, I love this. But I was called into the principal's office in my last year and told that I wouldn't be able to do the classics because of my skin colour, so not to get my hopes up. And I remember saying, well, there may be difficulties, but what I'll do is I'll try and confront those difficulties a long way rather than start off by saying, right, well, I won't even think about that because I won't be able to. Um, and as Justin, as you know, became the first uh, leading black actress at the Royal Shakespeare Company in their history. One of the things that I wasn't able to do when I was at drama school was ever to find any accommodation. On Tuesdays, I think it was, the evening standard would come out and in the back would be different areas of London and adverts for what was available. So I would call up and, you know, see a, a bed sit or a flat chair or something like that, speak on the phone and it was available. And yes, you come. why don't you come at four and we'll sort it out then. Every single time I would... <laughs> I would turn up, ring the doorbell, the door would open, and you, Aggie, you know this, you know this, it's but a flicker across the face, you know, and sorry, it's gone, it went five minutes ago, it's not available. So I spent the three years at drama school um, sleeping on people's sofas uh, for three years. I never got any accommodation. Both of you have had similar experiences from an educational point of view, but you're now both successful women. What career challenges have you faced, though, being black women in your very different industries? When I was an HR manager, rather large organisation, lots of different metrics, lots of different ways of measuring performance. On an objective scale, I was considered top talent. I was put through a talent programme, etc. But when it came to actually being assigned to senior roles, etc., I was told by my then manager that I was too ambitious, that as a black woman in the UK whose mother was a nurse, I had done really, really well and I should stop being so ambitious. I was fine where I was. The thing that really knocked me for six, the thing that really impacted my mental health, the thing that almost made me, I guess, onto a bit of a dark place for a few weeks, however long it was, was that piece around what can I do? I'm working hard, I'm doing what I can and my race is getting in the way and nobody is helping, nobody is doing anything about it. Turning up to meetings with suppliers, I was the leader of the team. Suppliers would always assume that I was the more junior person and they would have this long conversation about how great their service is, but they would never even acknowledge me. And then at the end of the conversation, they'd start saying, okay, what about, so what, what are we thinking? And then my team would say, well, actually, Aggie's the boss, you need to speak to her. And then the look, like you said, Josette, the look that you get with people think, oh, wow, you're the person. Oh, right, we need to talk to you. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Josette, we've heard from Aggie some of the challenges that she's faced in her career. What sort of challenges have you faced? 
based? And have you found it easy to challenge some of the behaviour that you've been on the receiving end of? Criteria for me is just good work. And if those characters I'm asked to play are great characters and they're black, that's great. I've never wanted to be categorised. I wanted to play human beings going through the same human dilemmas, whatever colour we are. And that's been a thing that I've had to have my boxing gloves on um, all the time. Still a fight. People look at my CV and they go, oh my God. God, look at that TV. You did that, and then you did this, and then you did that, and then you did this, and then... And they seem to think I kind of jumped from one thing to the other. I didn't. Everything's been a fight. Everything has been a fight, and everything is still a fight. If I'm in anything, it's like, will it distort the piece? Should I be in it? There's always comment. So, Aggie, what positive experiences have you had where your colour just did not matter? In the HR world, it's the teams that are maybe smaller or the organisations that are smaller where... I've actually felt like my colour and, and didn't matter at all. And I think it comes down to the confidence of the people around you. And if I look at the organisation I'm in now, I work in a very traditional business. Um, most of the leaders are white males, actually, apart from one who's a white female, but most of them are white males. They are sort of owner operators. They've got big stakeholding. So they're very comfortable and secure in who they are and where they are. I don't feel that discrimination. I don't feel different because of my race. I would say the only place it doesn't matter is friends, love one, charity work and the dog. Because there's always something that makes you different. I don't say that it matters always in a negative way. You know, there's always something. There's always something. You've both given very personal and vivid examples of racism that you've experienced in your childhood and in your careers. But Josette, you mentioned that some people will say, oh, you know, I'm not a racist. I think, Aggie, you gave that example as well. You know, it's, it's often a defence, isn't it, for, well, I'm not racist, I've got black friends. But racism has probably changed or has it? What's your view? Racism is not getting worse, it's getting filmed. We are seeing the examples in a way we couldn't see them before, but they were there. Its existence and the fact that it's there has not changed, but I experience it differently. I think people are more aware of being politically correct. A lot of my white friends talk about the fact that before we were friends, they didn't mind racist jokes that much. They thought they were funny. They thought it didn't matter because it's at home. They didn't, they didn't really think about it that much until we became friends. Then they realised actually what they're doing isn't that nice or it's not that great. It's a bit more covert, but I think it's a little less intentional as well. I was talking to some of my white friends and they admitted that during this time, because we've had these conversations, that for instance, if they were walking along the road and a black man was walking towards them, they crossed the road. They didn't know why they did, but they just did. And if they're in a lift on their own and a black man came in, they would feel uncomfortable and, and turn their handbag to the side, one of them said. And these things, they don't, wouldn't even notice, they wouldn't even think about doing. They're, they're, not, they're not racists, you know, but this is the kind of casual racism that people don't even realise. Everybody I know will say that they're non-racist, and that's absolutely true, but they're not actively anti-racist. They're not saying to themselves, why do I feel I need to cross the road when that person or a young man in a hoodie, black, uh, where I don't if a white man's walking towards me on them. It's these fundamental questions that are inside the most loveliest non-racist people. But that is a form of unconscious racism. People are trying to be better people now. It's more unconscious. It's the stuff that maybe they've picked up from media and stories and the news and growing up and things like that, that they're not even thinking about. I know from conversations that I've had with both of you prior to recording today's podcast, is that both of you have experienced travelling in first class and been the only people that have been asked to show their ticket. I've actually yeah. seen that take place 
10 years ago myself and sat there in silence watching that person go through that experience and actually the actively anti-racist bit is me standing up and saying something now in order for us to get to a space where this doesn't happen what would both of you like to see change to actually achieve equality you have to go to the grassroots you have to start at school children should be taught about how britain became great and that britain became great by the enslavement of others. It's an uncomfortable truth that can only be taught and only make a difference if it's admitted to. Black history has to be taught, not just one month in October. Slavery, civil rights, got to start at school. And also every single person in a position to change things has got to realise that they can only do that by recognising and admitting that they're part of it. There's this perception, even when the George Floyd piece started, there's this perception that this is an American problem. I feel like if our police people had guns, we would have a very similar situation as well. The history of enslavement, you know, we talk about the fact that Britain was at the forefront of ending slavery in 1807. People still had slaves in 1834. 17 years after the end of slavery, people still had slaves. And in 1834, they passed a law where people would give up their slaves, but they would actually get paid compensation for giving up their slaves. The payments actually only stopped in 2015. So five years ago, our country finished paying compensation to people who enslaved black people. But the people they enslaved got nothing. I think also we need to change some of the language around racism. We talk about microaggressions, you know, micro, you know, something's micro, it's teeny weeny, isn't it? It's tiny. It's almost nothing. These aren't microaggressions. They hurt. These things hurt. These things are painful. These things make people shrink. Not microaggressions, they hurt. Go and look up the medal that the UK gives to all diplomats. And on the front of it is something like KCG something or other. But what it consists of is a picture of a white person standing on the neck of a black person. And no one has ever questioned this. 400 years has led to an ingrained belief, conscious or otherwise, that black people are inferior to white people. It's so ingrained in the DNA. To change is going to take fundamental listening and realising and asking yourself how complicit you are in this. Whether you shrink when a black man comes in the lift or in first class or someone says, you do know this is first class, don't you? We talk about Korea, we talk about all these other countries keeping their people from information or hiding information from people. We are so great with our information. We're not that great. We keep a lot of stuff very beautifully hidden. I think it's, it's about educating in schools, absolutely, but absolutely us. We don't know as much as we think we do about what our government does on our behalf. It's about finding a way that those people say, we are responsible for this. This kind of systemic racism is starting with us, me as a person in this position. Yeah. And that is, yeah. a th that is a thing that's very, very difficult to get people to do. They don't want to face that uncomfortable truth, but that's the only way we can elicit change. So moving on to uh, the raw subject now, what went through your mind when you first saw those pictures of George Floyd with a policeman with his knee on his neck. It was a week where other things had happened. So recently we'd had Aubrey just going for a job, being shot down by a father and son, who uh, it later transpired were active racists. Then we had the issue with Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper in Central Park, 
how does another human being do that to another human being? Yes, you think he's annoying and nosy for telling you to put your dog on a leash. Why would you call the police in such a horrible panicky voice saying your life is in danger and then use the fact that it's an African-American male, probably having a very good understanding of what that might mean for this person. Then those images came out of what happened to George Floyd. And again, the callousness, this man kneeling on another man, not just an unarmed man, also incapacitated man, also in handcuffs, also on the floor, clearly not a danger to anyone. And he's kneeling on him with his hands in his pocket, looking around like he's just chilling. He might as well have been whistling. It's the depravity of it, I guess, which really, really struck me. And then he had his colleagues around who were doing nothing. And these are the people who are supposed to protect and serve. That is their motto. Speaking to my 10-year-old and my 14-year-old about this, and they're asking questions. I mean, how do you have a conversation with a 10-year-old about people hating her? And she's obviously done nothing wrong. She's just a child. She's a baby. It was really hard. And for a long time, I didn't really, other than answering my daughter's questions, I didn't really talk about it, even with family or anything. I just couldn't bring myself to talk about it. We had a Teams call similar to this and we were talking and someone talked about their challenges they faced that week. And I started talking about George Floyd and how that has been such a huge challenge for me. And I broke down in tears. It was really embarrassing, really awkward, but I think that was the start of my process in talking about it. Um, yeah. I guess it was just trauma. I guess it's probably the best way to... If I had to pick one word, it was just traumatic. He'd sorted his life out and he'd moved to Minneapolis to start a new fresh life. If someone has committed a crime in the past, it doesn't mean that they can be squeezed to death with someone on their knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds. So what if he had a Absolutely. petty criminal past? So what? Absolutely. That didn't give anyone the right to do that to him. When it came on, I wanted to look away. There was part of me that was thinking it was disrespectful to be looking at a man in his dying minutes. I forced myself to look at it and I felt so sick. There was part of me that was thinking, how many more times has this got to happen? But what happened with George Floyd was the door to that room of all the many experiences growing up and work and challenges and now and all that flew open against my will and I found it the most painful, viscerally painful experience. And then people in the public eye, black people, talked about their personal experiences and people started to sort of listen in a way that... They hadn't. There's an opportunity for us to speak and be heard in a way we haven't been heard before. Why do you think George Floyd's murder has led to such wide-ranging protests? People woke up to the fact that this has happened to a person, we've seen it happen, but the judicial system doesn't care enough to do something about it. Lots around social media, there was a white gentleman who sort of said, I now understand white privilege because I'm a white man and I paid with a bad check once. It's now a story I sometimes tell at Christmas with my friends, just to sort of talk about, oh, there was this one time when this happened to me. But a black man does the same thing. He ends up in this situation. So he then said, you know, I now understand my white privilege. It's been a different kind of an eye-opening for white people. And not just this, but listening to all the personal stories from well-known people, from, from their friends, about their own personal experiences. And it's led to an opportunity for people to have their voices heard in a different way. You know, I, I've spoken about things in my own life that I've never spoken about with friends before. And I wouldn't have done because it'd be like, uh, you know, and they'd say, oh, how terrible. That's all. Yeah, but it wouldn't really have got through. But for some reason, this provided a different opportunity to do so. What changes would you both like to see taking place to finally achieve 
equality. For starters, I think people who have a voice, politicians, I'm talking about actors, I'm also talking about radio hosts, they need to be very careful in terms of how they use their voices and really, really think about what they're doing and what they're saying. Some talking radio stations. Why are people protesting when there's COVID? Why are people rioting? They're not helping themselves. It's not every single black person who is rioting. For starters, you know, there's a group of people rioting. Try to put yourself in their shoes for centuries and centuries and generations there's this stuff that's happening and we know if you look at child psychology and we are just evolved children when children throw tantrums it's because there's stuff that's happening that they don't understand that they have no control over so they act in a way which is not exactly natural to them there's this horrible pain that we feel we can do nothing about that we feel we have no power over and a small minority of us choose to express it in that way which isn't great i'm not suggesting it's good but don't come on the radio and influence people and say stupid things like they are not helping themselves those guys doing what they're doing doesn't mean that racism is okay it does not mean it's okay it's wrong full stop and also when you consider covid and people actually protesting and marching what could be so painful and hurtful that you would risk catching something like that to go and protest that's how deeply people feel it all of this stuff is about questioning yourself when if you're white, as I say, systemic racism can't change unless you recognise you're part of it. What can employers do? They need to question themselves and their workplace. They need to look around their workplace and see why it's mostly be white. And they need to seriously ask themselves uncomfortable questions about why that is. You've got to open up to yourself and ask yourself some deeply uncomfortable questions and do something active. I don't mean ticking a, a token box. It's about the fact that a lot of these employees will say, well, you see, there are so many white people here, mostly white, there's hardly a black face. I don't know, I mean, I'm not racist. It's not about not being racist, it's about being actively anti-racist. When I say actively anti-racist, it sounds aggressive and it sounds big, that's not what I mean. There are a lot of decent people around and they're, you know, and they're capable and they are decent people, but even they let things slip. And when you say that, I'm not meaning to, that people should be frightened and think they've got to do some massive great gesture or it can be tiny add your voice to a petition speak out or as Justin said if he sees people like Aggie and myself on a train in first class and we're the only people who gets asked to show their ticket somebody should say well I don't think that's right you've got to be actively anti-racist and that's what all these employers have to do there's a level which is just being a decent human being <laughs> I would just say that so I think if you see a person fall over in the street it's a decent thing to try help them up. If you see someone on a train being asked for a ticket, nobody else is being asked, it's a decent thing to say, come on, what is going on? I think anti-racism, people look at it and think of it as this big, massive thing, going on marches and speaking on shows. I think that's, but I think it's just the common decency thing. What would I hope someone would do if I was in that situation? But on the employment thing, I echo what you said, uh, Josette, organisations have to question themselves. Diversity and inclusion is a choice. If you are not diverse, it's because you have chosen not to be. If you are in the Outer Hebrides and the, the demographics are purely, mainly white, then it makes sense that you wouldn't have that representation in your organisation. If, however, you are in the middle of London and the demographics are 40% people of colour, as an example, then why is it that your organisation does not match that? So that's what I mean by enough or the right numbers. 
then also once you do have people in your organization how do they feel so what are the engagement stats when you break them down by gender by ethnicity is everybody feeling included is everybody feeling that they have equal opportunities if any of those answers are no if your data tells you the answer is no then why is that and what are you going to do about it what do you need to change the starting point is speaking talk have conversations understand what the lived experience is in your organizations all these things that Josette and I have spoken about, about our experiences, about the casual racism, as we might call it, about the microaggressions, although they're not that micro really, all those things have probably happened in your organization, but you just don't know about it. So ask the questions and be prepared for the answers. And I think more importantly, be prepared to do something about it. Aggie and Josette, thank you so much for sharing your very personal experiences with us today. Um, I think we really need to have more of these open conversations in our daily lives and in our workplaces so that we can finally achieve equality in our society. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you both. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at podcast.tedlearning.co.uk or you can find us on most podcast platforms. This podcast was produced by TED Digital.